Hi, good day and welcome to About Patterson, a podcast about the past, present, and future of our hometown, Patterson, New Jersey. As all Pattersonians know, Patterson was founded by our first Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, in 1791. Hamilton's vision for Patterson was as America's first planned industrial city, but even Hamilton couldn't have seen what Patterson would become. Patterson led the Industrial Revolution where Sam Colt manufactured his first revolvers, John Ryle manufactured America's first silk, Thomas Rogers built the first American locomotives, and John Holland tested the world's first modern submarine. But Patterson isn't just about the Industrial Revolution, it's about us, the people of Patterson. It's about our parents, our grandparents, and our great-grandparents who came to America and settled in Patterson for a better life. We all know Patterson today isn't the Patterson we grew up in, but something is happening that no one saw coming. After decades of decline, a miracle happened. Two Pattersonians, former Mayor Bill Pascrell in the House of Representatives and Frank Lautenberg in the United States Senate, passed a bill that was signed by President Barack Obama, making our Great Falls District a national park, and in my view, changed Patterson's future for the better. This is a podcast about Patterson, the historic Patterson we learned about, the Patterson we grew up in, and the Patterson that, in my opinion, is emerging from the ashes. So thanks so much for joining me today. Welcome to this week's podcast. This is episode 13 about Reuben Hurricane Carter and the Lafayette Grill murders during the summer of 1966, part 3. Just about everyone of my generation knows about Reuben Carter. If not from boxing, then from the two trials about the murder, the song written by Bob Dylan, or even the movie starring Denzel Washington. I know about Reuben Carter because in 1966 I was a boxing fan, and Carter's matches were often televised on the Friday night fights from Madison Square Garden. Carter was from Patterson, New Jersey, and as you know, so am I. In this episode, we'll pick up just a few hours after the murders. On the morning of the murders, June 17, 1966, Detective Vincent D. Simone was asleep at his home in Hawthorne. He was roused from his sleep at about 5 a.m. and advised that they had a bad one. D. Simone dressed in a business suit and went to the Lafayette Grill first. The bodies had been removed from the crime scene. The ambulances had taken the two injured to the hospital. Willie Marins to St. Joseph's Hospital, and Hazel Tannis to Patterson General. The witnesses were at the police station on Washington Street. After investigating the horrific scene inside the Lafayette Grill, Simone headed to police headquarters. I want to take a few minutes to talk about lead detective Vincent Simone. Vincent Simone was born in 1918 and like many of his generation, served in World War II. Simone served in the United States Army in the Timberwolf Infantry Division. This army unit invaded shortly after the D-Day invasion and fought their way through Belgium into Germany. In the small town of Stolberg, Germany, Simone was struck in the face by a sniper's bullet, scarring him for life. He was evacuated out of the war zone and underwent numerous plastic surgeries to repair his face. In his book, Media Meddlers, you could tell that DeSimone was very self-conscious about those scars. 
After returning from the war in October 1947, DeSimone joined the Patterson Police Department. He spent four years on the streets of the city and even then knew who Reuben Carter was. Young Reuben had his share of run-ins with the police. In four years, DeSimone became a court attendant and then in 1953, chief of detectives in the Passaic County Prosecutor's Office. On the morning of June 17, 1966, Simone was called to the Lafayette Grill, where as lead detective he took charge of the case. In the 1999 movie, Hurricane, starring Denzel Washington, a character, a fictionalized character, was created named Sergeant Della Pesca. Della Pesca, who was supposed to be Detective Simone, is an arrogant, racist detective hell-bent on framing an innocent Reuben Carter for the murders. At the start of this movie, at the start of most movies, but particularly this movie, there's a disclaimer that some of the characters have been composited or invented, and some incidents fictionalized. Movie producers do this so that they won't be sued by the real people. In the case of this movie, it didn't help because they were sued and lost a defamation case by boxer Joey Giardello. The movie suggested that Carter lost his only opportunity to become middleweight champion because the referee was racist. Anyone who's seen the fight, and I did, knows Giardello dominated that fight and was the rightful winner. Of course, that movie had an agenda to portray Reuben Carter as a victim of racism. So, of course, they weren't interested in focusing on the evidence that convicted Reuben Carter and John Artis twice. The movie relied on fiction. The lesson here is, don't get your history from the movies. At police headquarters, Simone took statements from Patricia Graham. Graham stated that she heard noises that had woken her up. When she went to the window, she had seen two black men leave the downstairs bar run to a white car with blue or black gold and gold license plates and butterfly taillights and spade away. She also detailed how Hazel Tannis pleaded for help, after which Graham went back upstairs to call police and also at Tannis pleading called a Tannis friend named Bob. She returned to Hazel Tannis to let her know she spoke with Bob. Alfred Bello, who had made the first call to the police, was also at the station. Bellow had a record as a burglar in Patterson who had spent much of his 23 years in reformatories and was out on parole at the time. Bellow explained that he was on his way to the Lafayette Grill to buy a pack of cigarettes when two colored guys came out the front door, one tall, the other short. The short guy was in a light-colored jacket carrying a shotgun. The tall one was wearing darker clothes, wearing a hat, and carrying a handgun. The killers made eye contact with Bellow as Bellow turned and ran down Lafayette Street. He hid in an alley. After a short time, he heard the car peel away. As he came out of the alley, the white car sped past him. Bellow described the taillights as tapered towards the outside of the car. Bellow related how he and Patricia Graham had run into each other at the front door of the Lafayette Grill. That's when he made the call for police. When asked if he could identify the two men in the car, he said he could only offer a rough description. He clearly did identify the car. Ronald Francis Ruggiero, a former boxer who knew Carter, 
was at the station. Ruggiero lived two doors down from the Lafayette Grill and heard four or five shots. When he looked out his window, he saw two black men in a white car. He said he couldn't identify either of the men in the car. Just before he saw the car, he did see Bello running down the street. According to DeSimone's book, Media Meddlers, DeSimone knew Carter from when the detective was a patrolman in Patterson. According to DeSimone, they never had occasion to tangle with each other. In an upstairs interrogation room, DeSimone interviewed John Artis first. Artis told DeSimone he and Carter got together at about 9.30 p.m. on the corner of Bridge and River Streets, where Artis asked Carter where he was going. Varying from the story in Carter's book, The 16th Round, Artis said they went to the Club La Petite together, arriving around 10 p.m. Artis said he and Carter left Club La Petite around 11.30 for the night spot, where they stayed until 3 a.m. When they left the night spot, they went for a bite to eat, according to Artis. That's when they were stopped for the first time. Later, they were stopped again and taken to the Lafayette Grill. Carter's version of the night differed not only from John Artis, but also from his own book, The Sixteenth Round. When Carter spoke with DeSimone at police headquarters, he said he left his house at around 10 p.m., drove to the night spot, then to Club La Petite, where he spoke for about 45 minutes to Nathan Selman about the upcoming fight. Then he returned to the night spot, where he talked with Eddie Rawls. Now remember the name Eddie Rawls. He would become an important figure in this case. According to Carter, this is when he met up with John Artis, and together they drove to Richie's hideaway. When they left Richie's hideaway, they were stopped for the first time by police, according to Carter. Later, they were stopped again and taken to the Lafayette Grill. Following this interview, DeSimone said he had a gut feeling we were on the right track. While these interviews were taking place, Carter's Dodge Polaris was taken to police, the police garage where it was gone over with a fine-tooth comb. Herald News reporter Paul Alberta was present for the examination of the car. In the trunk of the Polaris, cops found amid boxing gloves and boxing equipment a 12-gauge shotgun shell. Inside the car, on the passenger side floor, they found a live 32 caliber bullet. DeSimone, sensing he was on the right track, suggested to Carter that he and Artis take a lie detector test. Both Carter and Artis agreed. The examiner asked numerous questions, whether they had been inside the Lafayette Grill, whether they had shot anybody in the Lafayette Grill, that they knew who did the shooting at the Lafayette Grill, did they know the shootings were going to happen. The examiner filed a report on June 26, 1966, with the following conclusions. After careful analysis of the polygraph record, it is the opinion of the examiner that this subject was attempting deception to all pertinent questions and was involved in the crime. Since lie detector tests are not admissible as evidence, and without concrete evidence, DeSimone released both Carter and Artis. Carter, in his book, The Sixteenth Round, wrote something entirely different about the conclusions of the lie detector tests. Carter said the examiner spread the sheets out on a table before him and declared, So you can turn them loose, and Artis too. Both of them are clean. 
They had nothing to do with the crime. Carter also wrote, the next day, the Patterson Evening News read, Police draw blank in double murder. Boxer queried, freed. Now, I've searched for the Patterson Evening News article and found nothing. However, Carter had the newspaper wrong. That headline was printed in the morning call. In the days after the shooting, DeSimone again questioned Alfred Bellow. Bellow kept to his original story that he was on his way to the Lafayette Grill for a pack of cigarettes. He did momentarily identify Carter from a photo spread, but backed off saying he didn't want to get involved. On June 20th, newspapers reported the new, a new development that they called a hot lead in the case. A sketch artist had been dispatched to Hazel Tannis's bedside. In extreme pain and clearly dying, the sketch resembled John Artis, but not enough for Simone. Hazel Tannis would die from a pulmonary embolism on July 14th, nearly one month after the shooting. The case was getting colder every day. Then one day, Detective LeConte spotted Alfred Bellow's car outside of Patterson Tavern. LeConte went in and sat next to Bellow. After a brief warm-up, Bellow stated, You know, we were doing a job that night. LeConte asked, Who's we? Dexter Bradley and me. Alfred Bellow and another burglar were breaking into the Ace Sheet Metal Company two blocks from the Lafayette Grill at the time of the murders. On August 3rd, police picked up Bradley for a string of motel robberies. DeSimone wondered whether Bradley had seen and could identify the two black men who had done the shooting. Bradley refused to cooperate. On October 3rd, the same Detective LeConte spotted, spotted Bellow entering another tavern. LeConte followed him in and started a second conversation. Bellow said, I'm all messed up about these shootings. LeConte asked, why, do you know something you haven't told us? You had the man, and you let him go. You had him right there that night. Who? LeConte asked. Carter. Reuben Carter. After additional questioning, Bellow explained that he was afraid of Carter and that Carter has friends in and out of prison that could hurt him. He thought after identifying the car, actually positively identifying the car, the police would put it all together. When LeConte presented Bellow to Sergeant Robert Mull, Bellow repeated his statement identifying Carter and John Artis as the two armed men who had walked out of the Lafayette Grill after the shootings. A week later, Sergeant Mall visited Dexter Bradley in prison, where Bradley admitted he knew one of the killers, Reuben Carter. The following day, Simone, Mall, Leconte all met with Alfred Bellow at the Wayne Police Headquarters. While Simone had a tape recorder running, Bellow identified both Reuben Carter and John Artis as the two men he saw coming out of the Lafayette Grill. He went on to explain the conversation he had with Bradley on the night of the murders. They were in the process of breaking into the Ace Sheet Metal Company on the corner of Franklin and East 16th Street, two blocks from the Lafayette Grill. Bradley was trying to pry open the door while Bellow kept watch on Lafayette Street. He didn't mention it before because he was violating his parole and he didn't want to go back to jail. While he was on the lookout, a white car passed them. 
Bradley was taking too long to break into the business, so Bellow said he was going to go get a pack of cigarettes. As he walked towards the Lafayette Grill, he saw the white car parked outside the grill, heard the gunshots, and then saw two men come out of the Lafayette Grill. One a tall man with a handgun, and the shorter man wearing a white jacket carrying a shotgun. The two gunmen spotted Bellow, and Bellow ran, hiding in an alleyway. After a few minutes, the gunmen made their getaway in the white car. Bellow then proceeded to the Lafayette Grill and went inside. He stole $62 and a dime from the cash register and called the police. In a few minutes, Patricia Graham from the upstairs apartment entered the bar just as Bellow was leaving. Bellow said you shouldn't go in there, but Graham went in anyway, screamed, and ran back upstairs. Bellow went down the street to meet up with Bradley. Bellow handed Bradley the money, and Bradley said, That was Reuben Carter. To which Bellow replied, Yes, I know. Bradley suggested they get the hell out of there, but Bellow insisted on going back to the grill. Bellow later admitted that he returned to the grill only because Patricia Graham had seen him. Things began to move swiftly. A grand jury was convened where they heard the testimonies of Bradley, Graham, Ruggiero, and lead detective Vincent D. Simone. The grand jury delivered indictments of three counts of murder against Reuben Carter and John Artis. Arrest warrants were issued. The case against Reuben Hurricane Carter and John Artis was made according to the grand jury. But what seemed to be lacking was why. Why would two black men murder three innocent white people for no apparent reason? Prosecutors thought the reason was race. On the day of the Lafayette Grill murders, Friday, June 17, 1966, the front page of the Patterson Evening News had two headlines. At the top of page one was the headline about the Lafayette Grill murders, two killed, two wounded, in tavern. Directly beneath the grill article was another headline, Former Tavern Owner Kills New Proprietor. A 48-year-old tavern owner, Thursday night, was fatally wounded by two blasts of a 12-gauge shotgun fired by the man who had sold him the bar. The victim, Roy Holloway, who was black, had purchased the waltz in from a white bar owner named Frank Conforti a few weeks before. Sometime around 8.15 p.m., Conforti walked into the Waltz Inn with a shotgun. This is seven hours before the Lafayette Grill murders, demanding payment for the bar. After a brief heated discussion with Holloway, Conforti raised the shotgun and shot Holloway two times. Holloway died at Barnard Memorial Hospital at 9.55 p.m. This is only five and a half hours before the Grill murders. The prosecutors believed this homicide was the motive for the triple homicide at the Lafayette Grill. The connection was the friend of Reuben Carter by the name of Eddie Rawls. Remember earlier when Carter spoke with DeSimone at police headquarters, he said he met up with a man by the name of Eddie Rawls at the night spot. Eddie Rawls was the stepson of Ray Holloway, the murder victim and owner of the Waltz Inn. Prosecutors would offer this murder of a black man by a white man as the motive for the Lafayette Grill murders. Between 1966 and today, no one has the answer as to why Reuben Carter and John Artis would kill three innocent people. 
whether it was pent-up rage that finally exploded out of the blue or over a white tavern owner killing a black tavern owner, only Reuben Carter and God knows. Thanks for joining me today for part three of Reuben Carter, John Artis, and the Lafayette Grill Murders, Just the Facts. Next week, we'll cover the trial of Reuben Carter and John Artis. That trial began on April 7, 1967, with the selection of the jury and ended on May 26, 1967, with the verdict guilty on three counts of first-degree murder. Alfred Bello, Dexter Bradley, Ronald Ruggiero, and Patricia Graham, now Patricia Valentine, would all testify as to what they had seen on the morning of June 17th, a year earlier. Thanks for joining me today and have a great week.